Hey, everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello there. Today on the show, we are going to talk about American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing, which is a Netflix 2023 three-episode true crime doc. Can you believe it's been 10 years? No. It doesn't feel like... It didn't feel... Mm-hmm. Like when, I, when I first turned it on, I thought, really? Okay. But... Yeah, COVID. Yeah. We lost a couple of years for me That's anyway. Right. Yeah, for sure. What did you think of this documentary in general? I really liked it. I think they did a really good job with it. First of all, it wasn't, I, I like in documentary, the documentaries when they're able to do a lot in a little bit of time, it, it holds people's attention. Mm-hmm. I think they they did a really good job at get, getting different perspectives from survivors as well as people who were actively on the force, uh, either law enforcement, detectives, so on and so forth. And then also just telling the story of these two brothers who end up being the perpetrators of this crime and giving a background to their life and all of that. Uh, and they did that, I what, in like three episodes, right? Yeah, and I knew very little about it, so that is also why I felt it was interesting. For someone who knows a lot more about it going in, I don't know how will they will uh, experience it. I, but I, I, remember, I remember the manhunt. I remember them finding him in the boat. Yeah, I did. I didn't remember any of the details. So yeah, I thought it was good. You know, it it, it is interesting. In ten years, we've had a lot of other natural, or excuse me, um, not natural disasters. We've had another a lot of casualties since then, and so in some ways, when I look back at this, it feels like it was even longer because we've had so much since then. But uh, in other ways, it feels like it just happened. In fact. I, I do remember, like I was just saying, when they could not find him, and I remember the whole situation with the boat and the yard and all of that. But the, what the documentary does well is it, it shows a lot of footage. It really takes you there into the fear of what these people experience. I think it also does a really good job at discussing just the like Bostonian culture and mm-hmm. just how many people, almost like a mini 9-11, where yep. they like really came together through baseball and community and because the, you know they had a they had a quarantine before covid yeah <laughs> you know they had yeah. they had a, a curfew and the whole thing that people were off the streets for like several weeks i think i mean the town was completely shut down because they didn't know what they were dealing with and they know that there were other things going on the there's a part of the documentary where the young asian guy who mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know ends up getting in the car with one of the his car stolen ends up in the car with one of the brothers. I mean, that, that whole story and just his rendering and how they were g- able to get him to give his testimonial. I just, it was really heartfelt. I yeah. think that's what I liked about it. Yeah. And it, and it was fast paced mm-hmm. with just the three episodes. There was a lot of facts coming at you. There were a lot of twists and turns. They really took you through the investigation. And I yes. just really like that when it kind of clips along. Sure. I do think that they, a big thing that comes up especially when they're talking about the city of Boston, but it was also nationally televised is the idea of like a collective trauma that happened at that time. And clearly more so for the people who were directly exposed or living in the city or had family members or friends that were at the bombing or lived close to the bombing. And I just wanted to maybe talk a little bit about collective trauma with regard to the the marathon Mm -hmm. and how due to these perpetrators not being found and the amount of damage that they were able to do in a matter of like what 30 seconds to like two minutes I think because there were two bombs I believe Mm -hmm. um, how that really sent a 
a wave or a cascade of fear across the nation and where I think we also started to see a lot more security at live events. Absolutely. I mean, as you're talking about this and even the lockdown that they kind of had right after it happened, it's it's just all bringing up 9-11 for me. Yeah, for the same, sure. The same thing on a more national. Empty streets. Global level mm-hmm. happened right after 9-11 as well. Like we all stayed in our homes. Nobody yeah. like wanted you know, went to work the next day, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's a psychoanalyst. Uh, he's also an author. His name is Robert Stolaro, I think is how it's pronounced. He wrote a book called um, Trauma and Human Existence. And he, it's basically, he characterizes the essence of emotional trauma as a shattering of what he calls absolutisms of everyday life, the illusory beliefs that allow us to experience the world as a stable, predictable, and safe place. So the shattering of these illusions by trauma brings us face to face with our, basically the fact that we all have an expiration date, finiteness, and our existential vulnerability, and with death and loss as possibilities that define our existence and that loom as constant threats. Obviously, the Boston Marathon bombing is a terrible trauma for all those who were injured by it, directly witnessed its devastation or were closely connected with its victims. But the tragedy also constitutes a collective trauma for all of us who feel the horror of it at, a, at more of a distance, which is where, again, this whole thing of 9-11 kind of comes in. Absolutely. A tragedy like this brings us face to face with our ex- existential vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities to harm, death and loss. And the existential vulnerability of all those we love, and perhaps worst of all, the limitedness of our ability to protect them. Collective trauma threatens to obliterate the basic framework with which we as members of our particular society have made sense out of our existence and derived a sense of security. He goes on to discuss how this is represented in natural disasters, global warming, 9-11. The illusion of safety is shaken when we see things like this. And to me, like what I was saying to you earlier before we were recording, it's the reason why we rubberneck when we see car accidents on mm-hmm. the road. Our own mortality uh, or the mortality of our loved ones automatically pops up in our fight, you know, in our survival and just, you know, our amygdala just whoop, you know, goes right on because God forbid it's somebody we know, or there's this curiosity of how bad is the accident? Did somebody die? Right. And I think that these, what some people might define as morbid curiosities through things like true crime documentaries or documentaries like this, where they're very, they go on to give a lot of detail. I think it's because there is, yes, it's a morbid curiosity, but also just a natural curiosity mm-hmm. because sometimes when we feel connected to the story or we think we can understand it, sometimes we wonder by doing that, can we prevent it? Mm-hmm. So I don't know any, any, it's human nature to want to understand other people's human nature yeah. to try to connect, protect, survive. Yeah just exactly the same premise we have about horror movies. You're working through the psychology of fear with that. And I believe that that's, for me, that's the connection to true crime is that you're working through the psychology of fear and what people are capable of and trying to understand what people are capable of uh, for your own survival. Absolutely. And then, you know, we know with the power of the media that can also 
produce a mass panic because absolutely if you watch the news when things like this happen it's they're looping at 24 7 and i think that's where the collective trauma comes sure. in that's where the fear of not being able to survive comes in mm-hmm. like all of that it's all connected yeah so we know that these two brothers were i believe that they both came over with mom and dad neither one of them were born here and they were was it Chechen? I gotta. I have to look and see. I can't remember what country they were from, but they had a a Muslim background. But the family itself, I don't believe, were like strict in their religion or anything Didn't like seem that. Like it, but... And they interviewed. What I also really appreciate about this documentary is that they interviewed fellow Muslim people who felt so. Um, it has to be hard when you represent part of a marginalized community. And we know that this was post 9-11. And so a lot of fellow Muslim people were like, great, this is just going to perpetuate, you know, the, um, the, the fear stereotype and the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a couple people on there talking about it, including one of the friends of these brothers speaking about like how they never knew these two boys to be extremists in any way. Yeah. But they do talk a little bit about how over time the parents decide to go back to their country of origin, that the brothers feel abandoned to a certain extent. Yeah, there was the father connection where it really felt like it was about him. Felt like it was about him. They they were um, upset with their mother leaving them and then starts this whole idea of like America is not a place that's really going to protect them. And slowly but surely, you know, if we're looking at this from a cultural identity model, they went from really not thinking much about their country of origin, acculturating into the American culture, but never fully. And then there's a part of every cultural identity uh, model where people can get stuck in kind of the radical piece of it, where everybody outside of their culture is deemed as as bad or evil or part of the problem and then usually that's like a healthy part of its development and then they move into more of that acculturation and being able to incorporate both and these two guys um, were not able to do that and the older brother had a lot of influence over the younger brother who the older brother really pulled him into more of this extremism. They started to notice the language changing, the clothing changing, the attitude towards America changing. But there wasn't, as far as, far as what I got from this, Shannon, there wasn't a lot of indication. Um, they didn't find a lot of evidence that these two guys were preparing anything. No, I think two, two things come to mind while you were talking there is one is that the documentary really builds a case for why yeah and i'm not sure in the beginning they really knew and so this documentary does lead you through how this happened for these perpetrators because like you were just saying there's kind of a cognitive dissonance with one of the friends because it's like this is not the person i knew and it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to to accept that this was my friend that had done this because it's so different from what i know and what we normally see or the average of what you and i have seen in bombers mm-hmm. is they're isolated they're loners That's they right. don't have any friends they don't have family or they have awful like very brutal families and 
or they've been abandoned, which is where this comes in. And they plan and they have like shops in the basement where they're building things and they right. have manifestos and right. all of this stuff. And so this was very different. It was very different. And I just wanted to verify that they are of Chechen descent and the brothers are, are uh, Tamerlan is the older brother who passed away in the shooting. Zokar or Jahar Sarnoff is the younger brother who was the one that ends up, you know, that they, they do that manhunt for days or whatever and find him. Shannon's bringing up this concept of like, how, how do we assess risk in situations where we're looking at these massive events that happen? It, we didn't have anything leading us to, uh, there, was, there wasn't any knowledge around something like this even happening. There weren't any manifestos. Nobody was putting up anything on Facebook or Instagram <laughs> that was indicating any, yeah. you know, any direct threat. So I just wanted to real quickly discuss uh, the concept of risk assessment and dangerousness and how we begin to conceptualize this. So Gavin DeBecker, who I've talked about on some of our mini casts and I think on our episodes before, he's the nation's leading expert on the protection of public figures. He's known for work in the prediction and prevention of violence. He's won a lot of awards. Um, he has a book called The Gift of Fear and that's it, actually available in 18 languages because it's a really, really great book. And I think every woman should own this book. And he speaks, he's very passionate about just people learning the warning signs of being able to have appropriate boundaries, but also knowing how to react when potential threat or danger is in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so in his book, he states that to accurately predict violence, one must understand the languages of entitlement, attachment, and rejection. So if I'm going to relate this to the Sarnavs, I just want to talk a little bit about how I think all three of those things were played out. So we have the idea of, yes, there was a sense of entitlement, the attachment to their country of origin, to their parents where they felt an abandonment, and then they felt rejected by America and I think by their parents to a certain extent. He also goes on to talk about another risk factor is believing that there are few alternatives left. When someone feels that there's few alternatives left other outside of violence, they this may become more of a weighted choice. So established authority did not care about me, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make this statement. So investigators have suggested that the Sarnovs were motivated by extremist Islamic beliefs but planned and carried out the bombings on their own and were not connected to any terrorist groups. I want to be clear there. But there was a belief that they resented their parents for going back and deserting them, leaving them with a country that did not care about or protect them. And ABC News had actually previously reported this, that uh, Sarnoff wrote an anti-American message on the boat that he was hiding in called the Slip Away 2, in which he hid uh, during the massive manhunt of uh, April that year. Law enforcement sources previously said the message also included the phrase, fuck America. Uh, that portion of the message was not included in, in the ABC story, but law enforcement sources that uh, said that Zokar also lamented elsewhere in the note that his brother was able to meet Allah first. So, but there was a lot of anti-American rhetoric in this. DeBecker talks about um, how rejection is a threat to the identity uh, it's a threat to the persona. It's a threat to the entire self. And in this sense, their crimes could be called murder in the defense of the self. And I think we see that play out with these two young men. And then lastly, just 
I want to describe what DeBecker d- discusses the four elements that could help one assess the likelihood of risk. The first one is justification. So feeling very justified in violence when there's a sense of some sort of emotional or physical deprivation, a loss of perceived safety. Um, the second one is alternatives. So he may perceive fewer and fewer alternatives to violence, particularly if he has exhausted all appeal processes. So he, sitting, he meaning anybody, perceives that the, there isn't anything else they can do that's going to make this much of an impact. Consequences is the third. So his evaluation of the consequences of violence changes as he sinks lower. If he feels angry enough, particularly if he feels humiliated, which we know is a huge trigger for risk, the consequence of violence may become favorable. So we see this a lot with school shooters and entitlement as well. And then the last one is ability. So often these are individuals who overestimate their ability to deliver violence. And this is dangerous because they're more likely to try these grandiose attacks to kill everyone or to blow up everything, though they rarely rarely succeed at quite the level they envision. They still end up hurting a lot of people. So it just gives you a little bit more around like how do people get here? No, that's really helpful. And because this case was... Or I would say this: these perpetrators come off with a very different, slightly different profile. Like I realize right. there's the abandonment piece and some humiliation piece in there that I thought the documentary, like I said, gave gave you something to chew on about that. Right. But not a ton. It's not super overt to me. It wasn't super no, overt it wasn't. like a lot of these kinds of perpetrators are. That's and right. So this was very unique and very different. Maybe there was the opportunity to... I'm what I'm thinking is we always talk about with risk assessment or when we have these conversations about how there were, you know, these 10 different markers that happened and why everybody failed and why didn't they Mm -hmm. see it and all that. And so obvious, but in this case I can see that. Sure. It's not always preventable. That's for sure. Absolutely. And, and nothing is going to be fail safe. I think it's just the more that we understand risk even from just a micro level. So if we're talking to someone who is starting to discuss their threats, like there are a lot of questions that we can ask. And nine times out of 10, when people make a threat, um, these aren't people who are actually going to act out on what they're doing. It's the people like these folks that actually do not issue a threat. Um, That's what makes it so hard because there's this idea that someone who issues a threat is high risk. And that is not always the case. A lot of times the threat is really the cry for help. And if they're given the platform, the opportunity to talk to a trained professional, we can talk them off that proverbial edge. It's when we don't see the signs. Yeah, it's the same with suicidal. That's right. It's the the hindsight of it and being able to do what we call like a psychological autopsy and go back and that's how we've learned And hopefully if we identify these things in people before they do something so grandiose, we can try to help. But yeah, absolutely. And it's the same. Yeah. It's the same as suicidal threat and Mm -hmm. homicidal threat from adolescence, which I have a lot of exposure to. And they make a lot of threats. And I'm always telling the folks that I, that I supervise, this kid continuing to talk about this is what I need. I need you to keep having him talk talk about it with you or keep talking about it. Yep. Keep talking, you know, because of course, when you're newer to the field, it's like, what do I do with that? It's like, well, of course you document it. Of course, you're talking to the school. Of Mm -hmm. course, you're talking to the parents. You're doing all of your due diligence. But meanwhile, just keep talking about it. Right. Because as soon as the kid, this kid goes dormant about it, 
I, I want to know. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We're not discharging this kid if if that's if if they're not ta- if they're like, oh no, I don't I don't really think about that anymore. Yeah, I'm gonna be like, mm, uh, no. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that. That sure. was uh, really interesting. I just I think the documentary is worth a watch. We both think the documentary is worth a watch, and also what emerged for me was the uniqueness of the profile of these particular people. And so that might be of interest to you too. So thanks so much for listening to terror talk. We, we hope you enjoyed it. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe, everyone.